As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back. Welcome back. So this is going to be part two of the Jessica Chambers coverage. And again, just to remind you, we are covering the documentary on oxygen, unspeakable crime, the killing of Jessica Chambers. So this is going to be the last few episodes. I think the last couple of episodes all rolled together. Um, It's going to be focusing on the trials. So, and there's a lot of stuff. I mean, these were, was it seven episodes? Like, there's a lot of stuff where we are leaving out. So, if you want to watch the whole thing, by all means, go yeah, for it. Yeah, totally should. It's It was really, really well done, I think. But there's a lot of information in there about the family and and about just the state of that, you know, the community and things like that. So, we're trying to pull out really the the facts of the case and you cannot say pull out on a podcast you can't say that no it's suggestive and it's inappropriate oh i'm just saying um hmm we're trying to i don't know another way to say it you can't think of anything else focus on yes the facts of the case and the things that are going to be presented in trial. So that's kind of where we're going with it. And uh, if you haven't listened to part one, please do. Please do so now. Yeah. I mean, it's not that this won't make any sense, but it won't make a hell of a lot of sense. And you'll miss a lot of really interesting and terrible details. Yes. Horrible. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we are now to day three of the trial. It's the first trial. So at this point, the jury is taken on a field trip to places that are important in the case. Uh, First, they go to the police impound lot where Jessica's car was. And the prosecution reminds the jury of the position of the passenger seat when Quentin described their car sex. And he pointed out that the passenger seat in the car is reclined, like Quentin said. So, remember, he had said that they had had sex in the passenger seat of the car. So, the prosecution says, that's lining up. It's leaned back. Next, the jury is taken to the M&M convenience store to give them a perspective of where it is in relation to the Telus's driveway and the camera that's pointed in that direction. 
and just for reference, I I looked it up on uh, one of the Facebook pages called Jessica's Revenge. The distance from the crime scene to the site where her keys are later found is 0.03 miles. And then from where her keys were found to the Telus's home is one mile. And then you can actually see the Telus's driveway from the M&M convenience store. So all these things are literally like from here to right over there. I mean, they're just like <laughs> so close. So, I mean, if you're looking at like a tight timeline of like getting getting from point A to point B and all these things, you know, would he have time to go do this and then go do that and all these things? It's not difficult at all. It's so close together. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy. So after the gas station, the jury moves down the road to the entrance of the Telus's driveway. And as the defense points out, there's a limited view from the convenience store camera. All you can see is the entrance and then the rest of it's obstructed by trees. So, there's not a whole lot that you can see there, but you can technically see the entrance of their driveway. So then they go down the dirt road where Quentin says that they had sex, and the defense makes a point that there's no proof that Quentin and Jessica had sex that night. Um, and the prosecution admitted that it was a serious oversight that they didn't get a rape kit on her. Um I can't believe that they just say stuff like, you know what, yeah, that was just an oversight on our part. Like, there's a lot of stuff that was an oversight on their part. This investigation was really not well done, I don't think. Um, But, and I don't know how much, with her being as badly burned as she was, how much you could get. But the fact that they're saying that it was an oversight... Seems like they could have gotten some information there. So, I mean, that would have been really helpful, especially if they're saying, if that many people heard her say, Eric did this, if you're thinking that it's a homicide that she was attacked, wouldn't you cover all your bases and try to get as much DNA or evidence as you can? I just don't understand that. Yeah, you would think so. The last stop they made was the crime scene and the prosecution went over like where and how the car was parked as well as where Jessica was reported to have come out of the woods. The defense asked if there were further searches to which the answer was no. They had searched the car and literally like specifically right around the car but past where the car was there's a fence line there and the defense attorney was asking did you check on the other side of the fence like did you what was your perimeter here and they said no that they just checked like a very small area of where the car was and I mean that seems like an oversight too and I actually think the investigator says something like that like Basically, like, it was kind of an oversight, but Jessica came walking out of the woods. She wasn't in the car when they found the car, right? So why they did not extend that area 
and search all around there, you never know what you could find. Like something could have been dropped. Somebody could have left something there. There's just so many things. And for them to just be like, well, she came from out there somewhere, but we didn't even go look at that. Like missed opportunities for sure. Yeah. Why would you do that? Once they got back to the courthouse, Major Barry Thompson, the lead investigator, was called to the stand where he testified that his initial interview with Quentin Tellis was on December the 10th, 2014. He said that Quentin gave brief answers, but they were able to determine that Quentin was with Jessica the day of the murder. He also stated that Quentin had been on their radar pretty early in the investigation when they were still trying to figure out who Eric or Derek was. When asked if he knew an Eric or Derek, Quentin gave investigators the name of Derek Holmes. Holmes was listed as a 25-year-old sex offender who Quentin believed had been stalking Jessica. Thompson was asked if they had checked into Derek Holmes, and he said that they had, but he was not a viable suspect, according to him, since Holmes had an alibi for the night of the murder. His mom was his alibi, though. We'll get into that more later, but I don't know. I mean, I have heard of so many people who I'm pretty sure have been later in life, God forbid, ever got into a a scuffle or a snarl with police. And they were like, where were you last night? And he was like, well, I was with my mom. And you would be like, damn right. He was with me. (laughs) Like, well, yeah, it's easy for it because the human nature people lie, you know? Yeah. Well, and like, I mean, it is kind of a question. Oh, what's like, the question? A catch twenty-two. Oh, a catch! Yeah. I thought. Oh, okay. Uh, wow. No, yeah, it is kind of a catch twenty-two though because most of what I do these days, I'm not gonna have an alibi. Yeah, I'm not gonna have these like big corroborating witnesses. Like it's gonna be if somebody asked me where I was, I'm gonna be like I was at home with my husband and my kids. Like my kids are gonna be too young probably for you to get receipts. Exactly. Like, otherwise, it's like, what else? I mean, I guess my phone would show that I'm at least in this area, if that's even reliable. But, you know, pretty much my only alibi is going to be Andrew ever. And I, I mean, I can see on one hand where you're like, well, that's her husband. He would lie for her probably. But on the other hand, it's like, well, I don't do anything else. So like, what am I going to do? Yeah. How do you, how do you come up with a reliable or a valid source for some people to? Yeah. Yeah. Or the Starbucks people. They would definitely. They know where I am at all times. They know what I did the night before. I tell them everything. Well, and I don't know if that's very like fair because they are your best friends. So exactly. Yeah. They'd probably lie for me too. (laughs) They definitely would. She's a good customer. (laughs) She wouldn't do that. In the early interviews, Quentin had told the investigators that he and Jessica had been together that day, but they were absolutely not together at the time of the murder because he was with Big Mike. Big Mike is Michael Sanford. And Tootie, and I'm not sure how to say this at all, Taryn Shagog? Mm -mm. I don't know. These men were interviewed and they were not in town, which destroyed Quentin's alibi. So... Quentin said that he had borrowed Big Mike's car or something like that and that they were 
they were definitely together that night. They drove around together, all these things. And then when they talked to Big Mike, I mean, on the stand, he's like, no, I know that I drove to, I think he said he drove to Atlanta that night. He knew that he had gone somewhere else. And so they knew that that wasn't the case. But Quentin still, even after that, says, then Big Mike is mistaken. Like, he knows that it was that day, and maybe he just got the day wrong that he went to Atlanta or something, but Big Mike says absolutely not. So bold, though, to be like, well, when you're caught in a line, you're like, well, they're wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. The defense, though, countered by asking Thompson if they had an exact time that the fire was set, and Thompson admitted they didn't, so the defense said, well... If there isn't an exact time, how can you determine an exact time that Quentin would need an alibi for? Thompson's response was that the time of the phone calls and the cell phone data, as well as the burning of the car, gave them their timeline. So, Beth Karras asked, how can you put in a report that Quentin gave an alibi for the time of the crime when you don't know the time of the crime? I mean... I can see that from two perspectives, too. Like, okay, I get it. You're saying, I don't know the exact time that this happened. But we have a window. I mean, we know that she was alive and well that afternoon. She talked to people that afternoon. And we know what time the car fire was called in. I mean, people saw it. So in between those two times, we need to know where Quentin was. And he's saying that he was with Big Mike and he wasn't. Right. This doesn't look good. He's not incredibly credible at that point. Exactly. So, I mean, it's almost like one of those, are they just trying to get him with a a technicality? Like, well, you don't know. You can't say that it was like 3.37 p.m. So really an alibi doesn't matter because you don't have a time. Like, that still doesn't make his alibi true. It still doesn't make the fact that he says he was with Big Mike true. It just makes it still alive, but for a bigger window of time. Right, exactly. I I don't see how this is helping them. No. Then the defense brought up a significant issue in the case, which is that Barry Thompson was not in town on the night of December the 6th, 2014. He was participating and overseeing the investigation remotely by phone at first. Thompson was calling the shots and giving orders, but he wasn't able to see any of the evidence or be on the scene. Without ever setting foot on the scene, Thompson ordered the car to be moved from the crime scene to the impound lot about an hour after the fire. He claimed that he was securing the car and then secured the crime scene so that it could be processed further in the daytime. The reasoning was that everything in the car had been burned down to the metal, so they didn't need to guard it all night or worry about losing any evidence in the move. The defense asked Thompson further questions about dates and investigation of the crime scene, but it became apparent by his answers that he wasn't actually sure what was going on during the investigation, nor was he in communication with his team. Now, you actually were not present in Cortland or in Batesville on December 6, 2014. No. So you were basically still in control of everything, even though you were doing it for the first couple of days by phone. Uh, yes, sir. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say I was in control of it because I wasn't physically there to be in control of it, but I was. it was being run through me by telephone. Now, 
Let's talk a little bit about the actual crime scene. I think maybe the FBI and some of my guys took a search and rescue team out there to just walk that area, just looking for any type of evidence that could have been left. Now, do you know the exact date that this would have taken place? Mr. Peterson, I, I, I'm not even going to guess. I, I'm not sure. It was, it was shortly afterwards, but, I mean, it would have been that following week. In my opinion to you, yes, it would have happened very soon after the crime. We wouldn't have waited weeks or months to go look for evidence that, you know, to a crime that happened on the scene. Did you ever speak with Lieutenant Dixon about the crime scene collection? No, sir. I, not that I, I mean, I'm sure we, I'm, I reviewed the evidence list, but as far as speaking with him about the actual collection, no, sir. No further questions, Your Ben Chambers said, Barry, hell, he didn't know nothing. I knew more than he did. Why didn't you go over it before you came to dang trial? Ooh. Bless him. Ooh. But, yeah, he just, he didn't really have any answers. He's just like, like when they asked um, when they would have secured the crime scene, he's like, well, it would have been done really early on. Like, we wouldn't have waited two or three weeks to do that. But he didn't have any information, like, like actual we, times. We for sure did it that night, or we for sure did it the next day. Like, what the defense is pointing out, and they've got a good point here, is that stuff was moved. Stuff was, like, they moved the car before they, they didn't process the car at the scene. They processed the car later. It doesn't make any sense to do that anyway. No. In my opinion. And they're saying it was nighttime. Okay. Like, they make lights. Like Exactly. I don't know. It just, you... Jessica passed away from this. This is a murder. Like, you need to do everything that you can and not miss any evidence. And I don't know if they, if law enforcement was like, well, she told us who did it, so we don't have to collect a lot of stuff. Like, I, I don't know what their thought process was, but he really didn't have any any good answers for anything, and he was just really, really vague with, like, I can't tell you exactly when it was done because I wasn't there, but I know it should have been done within so much time, so I'm sure that's how it happened. Like, we wouldn't have waited a long time. Well, okay, but, like, what's a long time? Because in the process of a murder investigation, especially to her family and people who are trying to seek justice for her and even Quentin's family who believe he didn't do it, like, well, a lot of lives are on the line here. Yeah, exactly. Like, if you wait any amount of time past what is protocol, then that's a long time. Like, I don't know. It's It doesn't... Nobody's looking good right now. Mm -mm. Like, nobody's looking good. The second in command, who was actually at the crime scene, Ed Dixon, explained that at the scene they took photos of things like her cell phone, the car, they found two lighters and the back of her cell phone that was separate from the rest. Dixon said that he was at home when he got the call, to which the defense asked him how long it took him to get there. Where do you live? I live in Sardis. Sardis. And how far is that from where we are now? I would have to drive and tell you that I couldn't give you the estimated miles. I don't know. Okay. How long does it take you to drive to work every morning? I never clock myself going to work. 
It's it's almost like they're going out of their way not to answer these questions. It's like, yeah, being just kind of shitty and not argumentative, but yeah. Got like, argumentative, yeah. A little argumentative. I mean, I don't, I guess I don't technically clock myself every time I drive somewhere, but I know how long it fucking takes me. Yeah, and if somebody asks you how long does it take you to get to work, you're not like, well, how long does it take you to get to work? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like pulling a 40-year-old virgin where yeah. he just asks questions back to her. I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like... like just answer the fucking question. Everybody knows a ballpark. Yeah, it takes about 20 minutes to get to work. It takes about 30 minutes to get to work. Like, right. what the fuck, dude? Exactly. He is, can't can't even give you, was it under an hour, over an hour? He doesn't know. Grow up, He has man. no idea. Do you recall who was there at the scene when you arrived? No, sir, I can't remember. There were several people there. How much area was located between the the actual vehicle and the fence? About three and a half, four feet. Did you actually take any measurements when you were there? No, sir, I did not. What did you consider to be the crime scene? My crime scene actually was that burnt vehicle. Okay. And anything on the outskirts of that burnt vehicle would be considered a crime scene. Okay. Did your crime scene extend to the other side of that fence? Not the other side, just uh, between the uh, between the vehicle and the fence itself. Okay. Did you walk around in this area? I did. Yes, sir, I did. So, and, and I'm just trying to ascertain for purposes of your crime scene, you didn't actually go on the other side of that fence. I didn't. No, sir. Did one of your investigators? Uh, you have to check with them, sir. I said I didn't go. I don't well, know. Well, Mr. Dixon, they were under your direction on this particular evening. That's correct. Did you direct any of your investigators to investigate the area on the other no, side of sir, the fence? No, sir, I did not. They didn't even check the other side of the fence because he didn't know if any other investigators did, even though they were under his direct command. So the defense said, well, okay, <laughs> you're, you're the lead investigator here, right? Because this other guy wasn't even in town or whatever. So he said, did you check the other side of the fence? And he says, well, I didn't, but I don't know if anybody else did. He's like, okay, but they would have been doing what you ordered them to do, right? And he's like, yeah. He's like, so did you order anybody to do it? And he's like, well, I didn't, but I don't know what they did. You'd have to ask them. It's not my job to keep up with what they're doing. And he's like, but at that moment, it was your job to keep yeah, up with what they were like, doing. Yeah, he's like, yeah, no, but it kind of is. So because they're following your lead. So did you tell anybody to do it? And he's like, I mean, not really. Like, I guess not. He's just like, won't give any answers. And it's not his job. Like all of these people, and we've seen that with other cases too. They're just like, I don't know what was done. I don't know who asked questions. I don't know who was questioned or whatever, because that wasn't my job. I don't know who turned in the evidence. That wasn't my job. I don't, you know, it's like, what happened to... I mean, there's plenty of stuff, you know, like when you work somewhere that's not technically my job, you know, but it's like if I walk in the lobby and there's somebody left a like tissue on the floor, I'm going to pick it up and throw it away. I don't get paid to clean the office, but looks bad. I'm going to clean it up like, well, yeah, I mean, you just do what's right and you, you do what needs to be done. And in this exact scenario it was his fucking job like, yeah i don't understand like there are so many there's so many investigators that are like i eat sleep and breathe this job right like that's all they think about some of them have lost marriages over it and they're not really present in their family lives like that's not healthy but there's 
it's like it means so much to some people. And then other people treat it like I'm clocking in. I'm going to, you know, wear 30 pieces of flair if that's the minimum. <laughs> and then I'm going to clock out. Like, yeah. it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I get if you work at, you know, McDonald's and it's not you your don't, passion. Yeah, you don't feel like you have anything to really be passionate about about your job. But it's like you have such an important job as an investigator. And in a town like this where there's not that much going on and you work really hard it's not like you just happen to become an investigator yeah like you go way out of your way and jump through a ton of hoops to become an investigator right so why would you not be like holy shit this is my time to shine and like i want to get this girl justice take it seriously yeah exactly and they're just like i don't know i figure somebody else will do it except that guy's not even in town right exactly but i thought maybe he would like i don't know not my problem yeah even though I was put in charge, not my problem. Dixon also didn't know who moved the car. Now, this vehicle ended up at the sheriff's department. Yes, sir. When did it arrive? I'm not sure because I didn't follow the vehicle. Okay. Do you know who moved the vehicle? No, sir. You have to check your records. I don't know. Sir, but I'm just asking you what, what you know, sir. And I'm testifying to what I know. Certainly. My question was, do you know who moved the vehicle? No, sir. I do not. Okay. He has no idea. What the fuck? Who did that? Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck? And Ben Chambers was pretty fucking pissed. I bet he was. (laughs) About that. He said this man couldn't tell if the car had been moved that night or the next day. And he questioned why someone needs to tell a grown man how far it is from his house to his work. When he's worked there for 22 years. I mean, it does not make any sense. And he said, I bet you can ask Annabelle how long it takes to get from here to school, and she's seven, and she could tell you. It's so true. Like, it just, it, se- it almost seems like they're trying to hide something. Yeah, definitely. It seems like they're they're keeping secrets for some reason. Yeah, like, it just doesn't make any sense. Why would you be so, so adamant about not answering a dumb question like and that. And elusive. Yeah, it just doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. How long does it take you to get to work? I don't know. In 22 years, I've never clocked myself, so I have no guess. Well, and that's the thing, The and I wasn't there for it, but that's it, just the way that it comes across sounds super snotty. Yeah. You know, like a teenager being questioned by her parents, and she's like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Ugh. I've never checked. Kind of sounds like Jody Arias. Ugh, bitch. The prosecution called Jerry King to the stand next. So everybody referred to Jerry King as colorful. He's very, very (laughs) colorful. Colorful. So um, just get ready for that. When he asked where he lived, he said, I live with my, can I say baby mama? And they were like, you can say whatever you want to say. Like, (laughs) whoever it is that you live with, that's fine. So he testified that he was walking with his daughter on December the 8th, 2014, when he came across a set of keys. He said on the stand that he gave the keys to his daughter to play with Hmm. while she was in the stroller. (laughs) And then they walked home. So while he's walking home, he's letting his daughter play with these keys that he found on the side of the damn road. She's in a stroller, though. I'm going to guess. My first guess is... Guest. Uh oh. My first guess is she's gonna put those dirty ass keys in her mouth. Directly in her mouth, yeah. Cause I think she was like 
I don't know, a little over a year old or something. She was very young. If you found a dirty sock on the street, would you just give it to her to play with too? Like that's Jerry King would. That's not smart. No. And I'm pretty sure his baby mama was fucking pissed. I would be. (laughs) Yeah. He said that he noticed that one of the keychains said Ben Chambers auto on it. So he called the police when he got home. He said that specifically he called Tyler Mills, who he knew because Mills had pulled him over many times in Cortland. Mills questioned King about where he found the keys, and he had King take him to the location. Mills put the keys back in the grass and took pictures of them in that location so that he could show where they'd been found. But it's like... At that point, though, I mean... They've been removed from, how exactly. does he even know? Exactly. That's not, that's not you taking like crime scene photos, dude. Like that would be, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, you found him. You walk, you, your daughter put him in her mouth for 100% sure. It's all over the place. Now you brought him back home. Now all these other people have touched him probably. Walk me back over there. Now, we've touched him a bunch more. Set him down about where you're pretty sure you found him, and I'm going to take pictures of that and document it for what the fuck purpose. I wouldn't be surprised if he had the guy, King, like, <gasps> you know, like a whole <laughs> Okay, let's do a reenactment. Yeah. Yes. Pretend like you just found the keys. Pretend yeah. like you're picking them up and giving them to your daughter. Pretend like, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. No. So... It should be noted, too, that Jerry King has over 15 criminal convictions, including grand larceny, indecent exposure, possession of drug paraphernalia, and resisting arrest. Wow. He's been busy. Yeah. Jerry King's story on the stand was different than the written report he had given to Rebecca Tellis by the lawyers. The report says that Jerry King found the keys and then threw them in the bottom of the stroller because he didn't want to get fingerprints or DNA on them. Eddie Idson said that his sister is the baby mama of Jerry King, and he finds it odd because he said, first of all, Jerry's not going to be out walking with his daughter. He said that's not something he ever did. It's not something he would do. There's not sidewalks or anything. He's not going to just walk her on the side of the road in a stroller. stroller. Yeah. Weird. And when asked if he thought Jerry could do something like this, he said he didn't know because he wouldn't put anything past Jerry. So it a lot about the story is not super believable. Tyler Mills is also called to the stand, and they're going to ask him about the keys and the way that they were handled. He's asked if there's a protocol for evidence like this in a criminal case. And Mills did admit that he didn't really know because he'd never done it before. He was also asked if there was anyone that may have been better equipped to do that kind of thing. And he said that Major Barry Thompson would have been, but Thompson told him to do it and instructed him to take pictures. Uh, I don't know. When the forensic DNA analyst testified... She said that there were samples from four different males on the keys. The lab did a Y chromosome test, which excluded Derek Holmes. It was inconclusive on Jerry King, and we know he touched him, but could not exclude Quentin Tellis. Unfortunately, a Y chromosome test can be unreliable, and even if Quentin's DNA was a match, he did admittedly drive her car at one point. So this test can't determine 
when the DNA got on the keys. So Quentin has said he's driven her car before. So you you should not be surprised then to find his DNA on those keys. Right. The DNA on the keys is not going to be your smoking gun if we know he's driven it before. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he has admittedly touched the keys before. Yeah. Tim Douglas is a special agent with the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation. He met with Quentin Tellis on December the 10th, 2014. And at that time, Quentin told him that Jessica and Keisha picked him up. They drove around for about an hour and then dropped him off. Quentin initially said that he didn't see Jessica anymore after that, but then said, oh, wait, she had texted him to ask him for money. He ended up meeting her at the M&M store. He gave her money, and that was the last time he saw her that day. Douglas was asked about Derek Holmes and whether he'd interviewed him. Douglas said that, yes, he had talked to him and his family several times, and Derek Holmes was at home rubbing his mom's feet at the time of the murder. Okay, that's specific. So specific. And he said this was backed up by his mother, brother, and some other people that were in the yard. I don't want to think about anybody rubbing their mother's feet. (laughs) I know. And then he said, plus the cell phone data didn't support Derek being involved. (laughs) The, here's the thing. Hmm. When this guy was asked about Derek Holmes and whether it's possible that maybe he just said he was at home rubbing his mom's feet, but maybe he wasn't. This guy got snippy. He's like, I'm telling you 100% he was at home rubbing his mama's feet. (laughs) Like, he was getting pissed. I don't know if it was, like, because he thought they were questioning him, like, his ability to tell if somebody's lying or not. I don't know, but... He he just got really, really defensive, like... Like an incredibly ridiculous reaction to... Yes, a super overreaction that didn't really make any sense. And it's like, wh- hold your horses here, dude. Like, well, yeah, why are we getting so upset about this? This is doesn't make any sense. Well, in my experience, the reason why people get very upset over things like that is because they're true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's... It's like a guilty conscience kind of thing. Exactly. When the cell phone data was finally analyzed, the detectives realized that Jessica and Quentin's cell phones were both peeing at the same places and at the same times. Quentin denied this and denied that there could be video of him at Eminem at certain times because he said he wasn't there. At this point, a computer was got brought into the interrogation room to confront Quentin with the videos and the data. They showed that Quentin went to Eminem on December 5th to give her money, not the 6th. The police saw this as deceit, but it could also be as simple as him getting his days mixed up. However, Quentin did eventually admit that Jessica came to his house and then they went to Taco Bell. So, I don't know, because at the point that they're talking to him about this, I mean, it's... I don't know. He said he'd been smoking weed that day and like all these things and they'd been drinking and all that kind of stuff. So he did, in fact, meet up with Jessica at the M&M store and he did, in fact, give her money. It was the day before. So I think it is possible to be like, oh, I got my days mixed up. And he to be to be fair in his interrogation, he says several times 
I'm telling you, like, to the best of my memory, I'm trying to remember. I can't be 100% sure. He's saying stuff like that. He's not saying, I'm positive that on the 6th I woke up at this time and all this stuff. I don't remember what I wore the other day. I don't remember, you know, yeah. Exactly. So he's he's pretty upfront about that, that he, he can't be 100% positive, but he knows that these things happened. He's not maybe... 100% sure of the specific order in which they happen, which came first. But he's trying. Yeah, he's just trying to remember. And when they confront him about stuff and say, well, this isn't how it happened, or now we have definitive proof about this, he's like, okay. I told you I didn't know. Yeah, like, he he's maintained that he's not 100% sure. So, And he's not fighting anybody on it. He's just like, oh, okay, good to know. Yeah. The defense attorney, um, and, you know, they're going back and forth, so this is Alden Brown, asked Tim Douglas if he can remember where he was 30 days ago. And Douglas told him no, but nothing significant happened to me that day. And Brown pointed out that people died 30 days ago, but they weren't significant to him, just like this day wasn't significant to Quentin. Mm. Douglas disagreed, though, but you could tell that Alton Brown was getting under his skin. He was jittery, he was drinking water, he was fidgeting, and he had already gotten really defensive with him, but... You know, what What Brown is saying is that they'd only known each other for a couple weeks. And I don't know. I guess maybe he's also trying to tie in that whole, maybe give a reason why Quentin would have deleted everything out of his phone. But, you know, Douglas is saying, well, no, I don't remember what happened to me 30 days ago, but I don't have a, a significant marker to jog my memory. Like somebody I knew dying that day, you know, somebody I knew being burned alive. Totally. Like that's something that you're, that's going to sear into your memory. And then you're going to remember then the events before and after that become more important because they're surrounded by something that you 100% remember. Like I can remember stuff a lot better if like, you know, we went out of town that week or, you know, whatever, because you've got stuff that doesn't make it all blur together basically. But what the defense attorney is saying is, you know, not to be rude or whatever, but that just still wasn't that important to him. Mm-hmm. It still didn't make a big difference to him because he didn't know her that well or that long or whatever. I, I don't know. I feel like in a town that small, everybody's going to remember that incident and it's going to help you remember what happened that day. I would think so. Especially considering he had been with her that day. And he said he had just had sex with her in her car. Like, none of that jogged your memory memory at all. Yeah, I don't know. The star witness for the prosecution was Paul Rowlett, an intelligence analyst for the Department of Justice who analyzed the cell phone records for Jessica and Quentin's phones. Though he analyzed Jessica's phone at length, he couldn't really figure out a pattern until he decided to take a fresh look in October of 2015. At this time, he looked at the location data. He determined that things were inaccurate due to Cortland being in a rural area. He looked at something called the RTTS, which is the range to tower, that are from Verizon, and a way for towers to guess where the phone was. So by looking at the times, he claimed he knew exactly where she was based on the videos and the reports, and he found that the pings were about a half mile off. 
he plotted all the pings and then shifted them east half a mile so they were on top of the actual location. The unaccounted for pings ended up right over Quentin's house in the area where he said they'd had sex. During his interview, Quentin said they'd had they'd only had sex once about a week before she died, but this would lead them to believe they'd had sex the day of the murder. What you're looking at on the screen are RTTs. That is a Verizon term. It stands for range to tower. It's the tower guessing where the phone is. So as an analyst, I at least had the ability to look for patterns. I looked at times I knew exactly where Jessica was, okay? I've got her on the camera at m and around that 5.30 hour. Those blue dots are the RTTs when I know Jessica Chambers is at the m and convenience store. And from the map that you see, they were off about a half a mile, the estimation by the tower was off. There's a second time that I know where she is. I colored those in yellow, and that's from 7.30 until her phone cuts off at 8.04, okay? She's at the murder scene. In green, I wanted to plot all the RTTs between 6.30 and 7.30, that mystery missing out, when we didn't know where she was between 6.30 and 7.30. So those are what you see in green. What I wanted to do was take those groupings that I have in yellow and blue and shift them back to the east and put them over where that known location is. And when you say shift, you're talking about moving them to the exact area where we know she is based on the video. That's correct. Puts her over the scene where she was murdered. According to data and the timeline that was presented by Paul Rowlett for the prosecution, Quentin sent Jessica a text at 2.03 p.m. and it said, I need you, Bay." And Jessica said, what you want? And he said, some loving. And she said, oh, Lord, can't. So we'll post... We'll post a screenshot of, of what the text actually looked like because the prosecution is is determining, I guess, what Jessica means by what she's texting. What Quentin says, you can tell what he's saying. But her responses don't make any sense. And maybe we just don't know, like, the terms for stuff now or, like, the abbreviations for texting. But these don't make any sense to me. So it's not actual words or... It's, um, what do you call them? Like the text, you know, BRB. TTYL. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. So we'll post the screenshot of it because the prosecution is saying that based on what she texted, what she said was, what do you want? And then, Oh Lord can't. And then they're using this text conversation as their motive. It's drawing a lot from this. And you, I, I'm looking at this and I don't know what it means. And I don't know that anybody else does. So they're saying that something went wrong. He wanted to have sex with her. She said no. And then he killed her. But, I mean, he definitely says he wants some loving. And I'm assuming he's meaning sex. But I have no idea what her response is. So it's just really confusing. Quentin had been asking Jessica for sex for the past three days at this point according to the prosecution. Then, just after 5 p.m., Quentin is seen on the video cameras at M&M. He wanders in for a few minutes, then he leaves. 14 minutes later, Jessica arrives at M&M, and she's there for about five minutes. At 5.29 p.m., she gets a voicemail from Quentin. 
Three minutes later, he calls her back. 6.04 to 6.11 p.m., their phones ping off the towers near Taco Bell, and then they're back in Cortland around 6.30 p.m. At 6.48 p.m., Jessica talks to her mom. This is going to be her final call. From 6.49 to 7.26 p.m., both of their phones go dark. He said they smoked for about 30 minutes in her car during that time. At 7.42 p.m., Quentin calls Jessica's phone. Of course, she doesn't answer because by this point she's already dead or unconscious, is what the prosecution believes. At 7.43 p.m., Quentin texts Jessica, Bay, my friend is coming over tonight. I'm going to call you tomorrow. Good night. Sweet dreams. John Champion called that his alibi text. So he's saying he sent this. Not knowing what was going on with her. He was not there. He was waiting for his friend. Yeah. But that, in fact, he did know. So he's just trying to make it look that way. Absolutely, yeah. At 7.50 p.m., a car pulls into the Telus's driveway, and it's seen on the cameras from Eminem. And it sits in the driveway until 7.52. The prosecution believes, listen to this, that that's Quentin, that he is parked, that he's getting his gas can from the shed, and then that he's going to drive back to the crime scene to set the car on fire. They're gathering that from a grainy picture of headlights. They can't even see what kind of car it is. There's, you can't tell anything. You cannot see somebody getting in and out of the car. You can't see somebody carrying a gas can. None of that is happening that you can see. Mm-hmm. They're just assuming that. Right. I don't understand how this happened in a court of law. At 8.04 p.m., Quentin leaves Cortland, and he's heading toward Batesville. This is also the last communication between Jessica's phone and any cell tower at all. 8.07 p.m. is when the call comes in about the fire. So, again, we talked about that tight timeline. The Where the car was found to Quentin's house is like a mile. So, it sounds like he's gone to a whole other city. But you've got 804 to 807, and it's like a mile. The call comes in at 807. I don't know how long it would have taken for the car to go up in flames as much as it did before the call came in. I would think it would take a while, but I have no idea. Yeah, you don't know. So could he have done something that quickly? You don't know. Yeah. 8.26 p.m., Quentin is seen on video at another convenience store in Batesville wearing a red shirt and hat. At 8.57 p.m., Quentin is seen again on Eminem's camera, but in a complete change of clothes. And about this time is when he hears about Jessica. However, he makes no calls or texts to her in an attempt to check on her. Instead, this is when he deletes her information from his phone and all of their communication. That's super weird. During cross-examination, Darla Palmer asked Rowlett about the difference between the information from Jessica's carrier and Quentin's. Jessica had Verizon, and they use RTTS. Quentin's phone was on AT&T, and they used something called Nilo's. The only, they only presented the RTTS from Jessica's phone, but they did not present the Nilo's from Quentin's phone. Now, as far as Nilo's, we don't have that on Quentin's phone. We do have it on Quentin's phone. We ordered it, but we didn't use it. It was unusable. 
So basically, on Quentin's phone, it was going to be difficult to determine location. It just doesn't give you a distance to the tower, only a direction. And so when you say distance, that just means you can't pinpoint exactly, precisely where Quentin is located. That's correct. So this means they cannot pinpoint where Quentin's phone was. So everything else is null and void. Exactly! Like, their whole, the prosecution's entire case is based on the fact that they think that Quentin's phone was directly on top of where Jessica's phone was. And then you come to find out that the only way that they could even get them on top of each other is to do what they call the shift. So... The half a mile shift. The half a mile shift. Okay, well, that makes it null and void, right? Because you and I are at the same place unless we're not. Mm-hmm. And if we're not, and then if I just shift my ass over to where you are, then okay, it looks like I'm there. That's that's not how it works. Like, Well, yeah, that's completely altering. Yes information to make it fit your narrative yeah that's what they're doing a hundred percent and they have all of these like the prosecution had all of these quote-unquote smoking guns that don't mean shit because they're inaccurate yeah and then if you even if you're taking that half a mile shift where does that was a law a a big i mean it's not a couple feet you know what i mean like yeah yeah exactly and even but even if you're doing that where does the half a mile come from because now we're finding out we don't know the distance So we don't even know how far Quentin was from it. We only know that he was either east or west of it or whatever. (laughs) Wow. How how in the world does that give you any any information to prosecute somebody with? Because that's your whole case right there. And then you're using these texts that you're essentially making up what they mean unless what they typed is, is what, or unless what she typed is what, they're saying it means I I really don't know where that came from because it it doesn't make any sense to me so if no, any I can't any of it. you kids who listen to bops know what the cool lingo is let someone know let someone because I just I don't get it but to me they're just making up what they think happened because they also then they're taking the gas can and they're saying well look at how suspicious this is he has a gas can in his garage. Every fucking body in the South has a gas can in exactly. their garage. And then they're saying, this car pulls into the driveway and it sits there for two minutes. So obviously that's Quentin. And obviously he's getting out and getting his gas can and putting it back in the car. When you don't see any of that, it's just black grainy footage. All you see is headlights and taillights. Has anybody in the history of ever followed somebody it's typically a woman and i hate to say that but i feel like i can because i am one in the parking lot and you're like oh she's getting in her car she's gonna leave soon it's gonna happen she gets in her car and then she sits there for five fucking minutes what are you doing in there a car sitting idly does not mean that they're plotting murder or whatever it, it means nothing because they, yeah. they have no nothing else to go on except for this car is in the driveway sitting there yeah yeah exactly you can't unless you physically see them plain as day getting that gas can out and putting it back in the car you cannot say that's what's happening i mean the fact that they're even trying to do this is just unreal to me yeah palmer also pointed out that this meant that quentin's phone can't be pinged with jessica's phone exactly despite what they've been saying 
After the state rests, the defense did not call any witnesses, and Quentin did not testify in his own defense. Beth Karras brought up that she was surprised that the defense didn't call any experts of their own to refute the state's cell phone data. I don't know if they just thought it's preposterous anyway. Right. Um, but she was surprised that they didn't have somebody. And an expert that is usually hired in these cases is Ben Levitan. He has 20 years of experience as an engineer in telecommunications. He's an electrical engineer who specializes in cellular technology. He would have been the person to... Exactly. Yeah. He even created the technology that allows you to be found when you call 911. Oh, wow. He was never called in the case, but after looking at the same cell phone data... He said that they, ha if they had asked him, he would have told him they have the wrong guy. He basically called Rowlett's shift to the east method for matching the towers bullshit. He said that Verizon's RTTS are a guess. They're not accurate. And when he looked at Jessica's 6.48 p.m. call to her mom, the cell tower that her phone pinged doesn't even cover the TELUS house. Oh, wow. So she was actually connected to a tower in Pope, which was three to four miles south of Quentin's house. And that actually excluded her from being at Quentin's house. Levitan also found that during the time that their cell phones were supposedly dark, Quentin was actually sending and receiving texts through internet sites rather than through the phone's texting service. So like Twitter, Facebook, Messenger, Snapchat, or whatever. So he is sending text messages or, or messages, I guess, on these apps. He's receiving them multiple times from 655 to 741. And then on at 744 and 746, he's actually talking on it. Mm-hmm. On Sunday, October the 15th, 2017, the jury is given the option of whether they want to work Sunday to hear the closing statements. And they'd all been sequestered and they were over 250 miles from their homes. So they're they, like, let's get this shit done. Yeah. So John Champion started his closing arguments and he reminded the jury that Jessica was a young, beautiful 19 year old blonde. He went through the timeline of December 6, 2014. He reminded the jury how. They had looked for anyone named Eric or Derek, but they came up empty. And when he got to a certain point, he stopped and let the closing do their defense before he finished, which is, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, I, I thought it was like one and then the other. And apparently in Mississippi, the defense is allowed to split their co closing. So in this case, Darla went first, Darla Palmer. She pointed out the lack of true investigation in this case. She said that there's details that can't be overlooked. The whole Eric Derrick thing, the strange man wandering around the, the crime scene, Carl, and the reliability of the cell phone data. And then she let Alton Brown take the floor. Brown made his closing arguments talking about how flawed the investigation was and the inadequacies of certain witnesses and officers. And then he picked up a picture of Jessica and he said, this is Erica Chambers. And he just kept calling her Erica over and over and over. And then he finally finished his closing. And, like, there were audible, like, gasps in the courtroom. Like, everybody was just like, huh. and he didn't pick up on it. He's, he kept saying it over and over and over. Oh, God. And then Champion gets back up to finish his. And now he's got something to, like, 
hone in on. So he picks back up and he's like, well, first of all, this is Jessica Chambers, not Erica Chambers. So just so you know, we care about her basically. Oh, like, goodness. yeah, it was really bad. Um, but he finishes closing arguments and the jury was dismissed to deliberate at 4 p.m. with the directions that the decision must be unanimous because this is a capital murder case. And the sentence would be life without parole if he's in, if he's convicted. So juror number six was interviewed for the documentary, and she said that the first thing the jury did was take a vote just to see where everyone was. By 9 p.m., there was still no verdict, and the jury was sent back to the hotel for the night. On Monday, October 16th at 9.20 a.m., they continued. They deliberated until finally everyone was called back to court at 1.30 p.m., having been told the jury had reached a verdict. Knowing this case had a lot of high emotions involved, the judge reminded the families to remain calm no matter what verdict was read. And he was like, if you can't handle it, then you need to leave now because you can't do anything. You can't make any noise and like nothing. So the judge asked if all 12 jurors were in agreement and the foreman told him that they all agreed. And as soon as the foreman handed the paper with the verdict to the clerk, another juror blurts out, we didn't all agree on that. What? Yeah. And everybody's like, what? Uh, <laughs> and the judge goes, sir? And the juror said, we didn't, we didn't all actually agree on this. And so Judge Chatham is like, okay. I'm sorry, do what? Yeah. The verdict has to be unanimous. All of y'all have to agree on it before you come back in. You can't come back in with only some of you agreeing on it. That means you all have to agree. And you're saying that's not what's happening here? And the jurors said, yeah, I did not agree that he was innocent. So juror number six said that we had one particular juror, bless his heart, <laughs> he wanted his vote known. So we know what that means. Yep. She didn't, she wasn't liking what he was doing. Mm -mm. And I feel like it's that moment when you're in school and the teacher is like, all right, we're going to move on unless anybody else has any more questions. And you're like, <laughs> please, nobody fucking say anything. Yeah. And then somebody's like, I've got another question. You're like, God damn it. Yeah. Aren't you going to sign homework tonight? Right? Exactly. Yeah. So Judge Chatham said, all right, go back. And this time, though. Bless that little heart. Make it unanimous. Everybody. So they're like, got it. Okay. So... They go back, and then 30 minutes later, everyone was called back in, and the judge double-checked. I'm sure he asked every juror. Yeah. Are you sure this is unanimous? And he said, yes. And the clerk read the verdict. He was uh, found not guilty of capital murder. And the assistant district attorney thought something was wrong and assistant asked... Assistant to the district attorney. <laughs> yeah. Asked Champion to have the jury polled. Six said not guilty and six said guilty. Oh, gosh. That's not unanimous. No. Not unanimous. Unless unanimous means split. Right. Juror number six said that her understanding was that if the vote wasn't unanimous, it meant automatically not guilty. That's not... At, no. And mm -hmm. he, I don't, he didn't say that. Bless everyone's little hearts. Yeah. And nobody said that. Like, I don't know where they got that. So <laughs> they made it up inside of their little baby brains. 
Yeah. So after one not unanimous, unanimous verdict, <laughs> we got another unanimous, not unanimous verdict. Right. This time split in half, not just one person. So the judge was like, my God, go back <laughs> and do not fucking come out of that room until all of you agree on the same fucking verdict. I bet he felt like he was taking crazy pills. <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, <laughs> it's like talking to a toddler. What am I doing wrong here? Get back in that room and don't come out until your room is clean. Yeah, exactly. So when the jurors were sent back for the third time... Oh, Jessica's stepmom, Debbie, said that they could hear them arguing from inside the courtroom. Oh. And she said the juror um, that they had interviewed said that they were asked to quiet down because it had gotten so loud. At 3.55 p.m., everyone was once again called back. And the clerk read the verdict. Oh, gosh. We, the jury, cannot unanimously come to a verdict. Oh. I juror, mean, yeah, juror number six said that the things that stuck with her were the names Eric and Derek and the suspicious man at the scene. And she agreed that Quentin was caught in some untruths, but it was hard to say he was innocent in the whole thing. She said maybe he didn't act alone, but she didn't believe that he was the one who doused her and set her on fire. The district attorney assured everyone that they were absolutely going to retry Quentin Tellis. So at that point, we had a mistrial. His retrial was scheduled for September 24th, 2018, but three months before that, the defense accused John Champion of prosecutorial misconduct and ethical violations. Palmer and Brown believed that Champion tried to coerce a witness before the retrial based on a phone call Palmer received from Jalen Cottle, who she represents. Cottle claimed that Champion asked him to testify against Quentin Tellis in the upcoming trial in exchange for leniency in his own case. A hearing was held on these accusations on July 9, 2018, where after testimony from both Jalen Cottle and John Champion, Judge Chatham determined that there was not sufficient, sufficient evidence of misconduct that would prejudice the Tellus case, and the trial would proceed on September 24th. Also between the two trials, social media blew up over a tattoo that was pointed out on Quentin's sister's right hand. It says, Eric. Beth Karras confronted LaQuinta about this tattoo. She said this is the name of an ex who is no longer in the picture. She got his name tattooed, and he got hers over six years before that. Karras asked if this Eric was questioned in regards to the case, and LaQuinta said, no, ma'am, he's not even from here. When the trial started in September, a different jury was bussed in from another county 120 miles away. Wow. While the state still called Jessica's mom as the first witness, they made an improvement to their witness list from the first trial by adding a speech and language pathologist to the roster. After she pointed out that it would be hard for this person to produce enough of a breath to make sounds due to damage in the lungs, she stated that in her opinion it would be impossible for this person to make intelligible sounds. That drove me crazy. I, I don't know why she had to say it that way. Like they would say, you know, in your opinion with the damage, you know, could she have made this type of sound or that type of sound? How do you make this sound? And she continually, she never would say she or Jessica, she was like, person. yeah, she was like, um, you know, it would have been very difficult for this person to have done that because this person would have had to blah, blah, blah. And this person would have had this injury. And I'm like, use her fucking name. It was really, it sounded just cold. I don't know. Yeah. 
Uh, Cole Haley from the first trial is called to the stand again. And he testified that he saw Jessica walking towards him with her outstretched arms saying, help me, help me. He said he could, he could, you know, understand that. It wasn't loud, but he could understand it. She was attempting to speak, but it was garbled. He said that she said, someone set me on fire. I'm going to die, which he didn't mention the first trial. Palmer pointed out in cross-examination that Cole heard her speak in full sentences. So his statement isn't really changing that much. I mean, he added that she said she was going to die. Um, But he's still sticking with, you know, that he could understand her, that she was speaking in full sentences. She wasn't just saying like one or two words. Then they called first responder Daniel Cole. He had testified in the first trial that she said, Eric did this to me. Eric set me on fire. And at the second trial, he testified that she had, he said more of a, of a breathy tone. And it was not, he said that he couldn't understand it to be a clear word. He didn't understand that it was Eric. It was more like, <laughs> like, like a breathy something. And he said, like how Jessica Simpson sings. Yes, exactly. Okay. So that, you know, that's where when we talked about the first trial and I said, all these people, all these people said hands down. Eric. She said Eric. Some of them said she said Derek, but either one, it was Eric or Derek. Now the story's changing. They're coming back through. And I think that the prosecution knew that that was a really, really big sticking point for the jury, so they wanted to minimize that. That it was, she was saying something, but they can't really be sure what it was, like that kind of thing. So they actually called several of the first responders, and a lot of them kind of changed their tune. I don't love that. I mean, isn't that perjury? It's incredibly, it's 100%. Like, you were saying in the first one, like, you definitely heard it, and now you're saying... Well, maybe that not. you didn't necessarily. Yeah. So the prosecution called another new witness who said that she saw and picked up Quentin Tellis walking that night and gave him a ride. She said that she saw him walking and she said it was very near the crime scene and that he asked her to give him a ride to his mom's house. And so she said she went and dropped him off. And she's kind of putting it all around that same time frame. Um, so, and they they had not called her in the first trial. The prosecution also called Dr. Hickerson back to the stand. He insisted that it was wholly impossible for Jessica to have said anything comprehensible and that the first responders were in shock, wanting to hear an answer. But all of them... Aside, unless they all got together and said, what do we think we all heard? They all heard the same name, though. Yeah. Or a one-letter difference in the name. I mean, and it's also a huge difference from from me, like, from you hearing something and being like, yeah, I'm pretty sure she said Eric or Derek, but you said a word. Like, if you didn't say a word at all... And it's just a noise that's coming out of your mouth. It's like, I mean, not to be funny or rude or whatever, but it's almost like trying to determine what a toddler is saying, right? Like, they're not saying an actual 
word necessarily, but they believe that they're speaking. It's not like when Rachel thought that Emma's first word was gleba. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's like, th- that doesn't make any sense. They're, they're not all, like you said, sitting around talking and saying, she's, she made this noise. It's not an actual word. What could it have been? Yeah. And they're comparing notes and things. They all, and from what I understand, they didn't even sit around and talk to each other and say, did she tell you Eric or whatever? They just gave these statements to law enforcement that night because a lot of them are going back and reading their statement from that night, their written statement saying that she said Eric or Derek. And I feel like for something that's a such a traumatic experience, like we talked about earlier for the first trial, you remember shit, you know, mm-hmm. like that's not something that's going to ever, unfortunately, ever leave you. Right. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't doesn't make any sense. So then John Champion decided he was going to make a bold move and he wanted to take the jury to the crime scene at night and attempt to recreate the noise and the chaos. And the defense objected, stating that it was impossible to really recreate the night. But Judge Chatham overruled the objection and at 7.30 p.m. the jury was taken to the scene where fire trucks came and turned on their sirens. Police radios, sirens, engines people talking over each other, all of this in an attempt to recreate that night and prove that it would be impossible for a severely burned, barely alive Jessica to have said something that, even if it was intelligible, would not have made it over all the noise of that night. The prosecution questioned a Questioned a witness? Yep. The prosecution questioned a witness at the scene in the dark. But when the defense was in the middle of cross-examining, Judge Chatham interrupted Alton Brown and said that this was ridiculous and they couldn't have court out there. <laughs> so it's like, right. they, the prosecution is questioning people and they brought them all out there. Mm-hmm. And then Alton Brown starts to do his cross-examination. The judge is like, the hell are you doing? We can't be having court out here. <laughs> you can't ask that question here. <clears throat> so he's like, okay, I'll stop. And then... They said they needed to get the jury back. So they, what's recessed, I guess? Sure. For the night. And then they went back the next morning and the judge addressed the jury saying that the night before was 100% his fault and his responsibility. He was, I guess, trying to say that like he didn't stop him from his line of questioning because he was saying something he wasn't supposed to or something like that. It was just that he thought it was time to get them back and he didn't want them to have court outside or whatever. Um, But then when Alton Brown started back, he ended up not finishing that line of questioning. So Hmm. you don't know what it was supposed to be. But obviously it stopped him, whatever he was going to ask. This trial, the prosecution replaced Tim Douglas, the one who was like really, really... Um, defensive in the first trial about stuff. And they replaced him with a calmer Scott Meadows from the ATF. His testimony was also kind of unremarkable with him just claiming that during the interviews with Quentin, he felt that Quentin was being deceptive and that he lied because he's guilty. Um, He didn't really have a lot to say. The prosecution this time did not call Jerry King, who said he had found the keys. And they said that it was because they couldn't find him, but his baby mama said that 
he was in town at their daughter's birthday party. So she knew that they could find him. They just probably didn't want to because they didn't think that his testimony was real reliable. And the the jury said that they didn't believe his story anyway. So that's probably why they were like, let's just skip him. They also called a DNA analyst, Catherine Rogers. She's the one who testified in the first trial that Jessica's keys had a mixture of four men's DNA. When they did the DNA test, Quentin's DNA was not in the mixture. But when they did the Y chromosome test, Roger said that Quentin's DNA could not be excluded, meaning it could be his. But it also could not be his. Right. So the thing about that test is what she ended up putting in her report is that his DNA could not be excluded because of that Y chromosome test. Now, from what they talked about in this documentary is the Y chromosome test is not as good of a test as the one that they did in more detail, which determined that Quentin's DNA was not in that mixture. So they started with this one test that's like not as detailed and it couldn't exclude him. And then they did another better test, Mm -hmm. which did exclude him. Much more detailed. But in the report, they only included the first test See, results. See, that is so shitty. That's like the results were 100% conclusive. Well, but that doesn't mean that it's a sure thing. Right. It's just They're just playing on the jury being regular Joes off the street that don't know anything about the law. And they're yeah. omitting yeah. things to make it appear that it's foolproof and it's a 100% like conclusive yeah. thing. I reached out to Greg Hampikian, a well-known DNA expert, to really break this down for me. Dr. Hampikian is a professor at Boise State University and also runs the Idaho Innocence Project. He testifies in cases around the country. I asked him to explain the autosomal STR and YSTR DNA tests that Rogers testified about. The letters STR stand for short tandem repeat. So each person with a short tandem repeat profile will be examined at between 13 and 23 areas of their DNA, depending on which kit the lab's using. The YSTRs, same thing, short tandem repeat STR, but the Y means we're only going to look at sizes of DNA from the Y chromosome. And in this case, the DNA analyst, Catherine Rogers, said that Quentin Tellis was excluded from the autosomal STR. So that's it. End of story, right? Yeah, it's disingenuous, to say the least, to keep someone in an inclusion when you have a more precise test that absolutely excludes them. In your own opinion, excludes them. (laughs) So why isn't that information in that report? Uh, I I don't understand it. Maybe, Maybe there's a reason but on the face of it, I, I don't see it. And uh, certainly in testimony, the analyst uh, answers honestly and says, oh, yeah, he's excluded by the, the uh, autosomal test. Well, that's the more precise test. End of story. You don't even talk about your general screening test that includes potentially you know, millions of people. You only should talk about the more precise test. It's kind of like you might think you're pregnant, but you're not going to tell your friends if you've taken a pregnancy test that says you're not pregnant. (laughs) You're not going to continue to tell them, I think I'm pregnant. You have better information. You defer to the better information. In this case, the better information is the autosomal STR exclusion. Not pregnant, 
not included in DNA mixture. End of story. Well, because that that should have never entered court then. The whole, his DNA can't be excluded should have absolutely not been admitted in court because we do have a more detailed test. Like, if you have the better test, why would you give the results of the less reliable, not as detailed test? Unless you want people to believe that the the inaccurate. Yeah, and, and like them saying his DNA couldn't be excluded it was like he couldn't be excluded and neither could everybody else in this room. Like, it's that not detailed. It's that vague in mm-hmm. general. So it's like... But they're presenting the jury with evidence that they that could be a defining factor. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, not, it's not cool. No, it is not cool. And you know what? We need to call Andy Cordan because nope. it's messed up. It's messed up. That's exactly what it is. The state brought in Big Mike to the stand to refute Quentin's alibi, and the defense brought in Quentin's sister to say that Big Mike was actually with her that whole day. So they kind of knocked each other's testimony out because now Big Mike saying he went to Atlanta and Quentin's sister saying that he was with her. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, We we were together that whole entire day. For sure. We were Mm. together. And he's like, No, we weren't. She's like exactly Yeah, we were. He said she said. Yeah. So Pointless. After six days of the retrial, the defense and prosecution both rested and began their closing arguments, after which the judge very carefully read the jury their instructions <laughs> to ensure that they understood their job. Deliberation started at 2.30, and after five hours, the jury was sent out for the night. When the deliberations resumed at 9 a.m. the next day, the jury took until 3 p.m. before they sent a note to the judge and it was a hung jury, another mistrial. The DA did not confirm or deny whether they're going to retry Quentin. Ben Chambers said that he thinks it might be a waste of time and resources to try to retry him and just get the same verdict. And Rebecca Tellis says that she wants justice for her son, but she wants justice for Jessica because she didn't deserve what happened to her. And she says, like, in order to get Justin... Who's Justin? (laughs) In order to get justice for Quentin, you have to get justice for Jessica first because what she says is then you catch the real person and, you know, the whole thing. That's very sweet of her to... Because I could could imagine if it had been... Like, if I was a parent and I was worried about my son being convicted for life, I don't know if I could look outside of that situation and be like, the whole, the, here's what we're actually here for. So yeah. That's kind of big and yeah, really sweet. Yeah, for sure. She seems like a really sweet lady. So that's, I mean, that's kind of where things stand. Um, he's, he's not really, at this point, being prosecuted in the Jessica Chambers case. I mean, they do still have the Mandy Shaw case. To work on, I mean, he he is in prison for using her debit card, and she's been killed. So they're still working on the murder for that, um, because he has been formally charged with it. And not long after Jessica's murder, um, actually the day that Mandy's body was found, Quentin Tellis married Chiquita Jackson, and... This was, remember in the text messages, he had told Jessica 
um, my friend is coming over tonight or whatever. Was it Tahita? Yeah, that's oh. who he ended up supposedly hanging out with that night. Um, and Chiquita Jackson is cousins with Eric Hill, which is the Eric that Quentin's sister had a tattoo. LaQuinta had the tattoo on her hand of. That's that's an interesting Eric connection, right? Um, from everything that I can read and tell, like he wasn't from that area, but there is a magical thing called travel. Yeah. Um, one of the detectives said that they don't think that he was in the area when it happened. Like he said, he's pretty sure that he doesn't think that Eric Hill was anywhere in the area. Um, so I don't know if they're really looking into that or not. Like there's not really a whole lot definitive on that. It's definitely an interesting, like if she was saying the name Eric specifically, I mean, that's a connection and it's an Eric that they haven't questioned. Um, Jessica's mom, though, gave a really interesting theory about the whole her saying Eric. If she is rendered unconscious at point A, which is over beside his house, and driven to point B, which is the crime scene, and she wakes up, she's on fire. Her car is on fire. She's up against a tree. She might be thinking... I have gotten in a wreck. So then when they say, who did this? Because they're not saying what happened. They said, who did this to you? What if she's saying a wreck? Instead of Eric. Yeah. And they said, when they said Eric who? Because every time they would say Eric who, she would say no or shake her head. So maybe she was saying no, like, I'm not saying Eric. I'm saying a wreck. I've been in a wreck. Yeah. Yeah. And... Because somebody somebody did do it to her. But maybe she didn't realize that. Yeah, because she she may not have any memory of the attack and all that kind of stuff. So she's thinking, I've I've crashed my car. Like something happened. She has no idea what happened. I thought that was a really interesting point that Could nobody had so, yeah. brought up. Um so I mean the the investigation was pretty bad. Um the trials were just a shit show. I feel like I don't think that it proves anything. I don't know. I feel like that was a lot of tax dollars wasted. Yeah. I mean, because they had no evidence. Like, I don't know if Quentin Tellis committed the crime or not, but unfortunately they were not able to prove it. And I honestly don't think they should have taken him to trial with what they had. No. Like, well, they just made asses of themselves. They really did. And, you know, I mean, it's always hard because if you really think somebody did something, I mean, if he if he murdered her, he needs to be in jail. But you can't prove that he did, though. No. And you and you have to because there are innocent people who are on death row or who've been executed or who sit 30 years in jail. Like you've got to do it right. So I just I don't think they had enough there. Um, and maybe they'll maybe they'll get him on the Mandy shall murder but um that's it wow well i hope that there is one day justice for jessica yes absolutely i feel like it's got to be a solvable case i mean it's such a small town and Mm -hmm. somebody just needs to talk yeah i feel like somebody knows something it's like they're just they really need to get to the point where they feel comfortable sharing their information absolutely yeah 
a sad one. It is a sad one. Well, thank you for listening. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Yeah, we will. Bye. Bye. Get in on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Killer Queens Podcast and join our Facebook discussion group at Killer Queens Podcast where we discuss cases covered on the show and all things 90s. If you want to submit a case to be covered on the show, visit www.killerqueenspodcast.com slash case submission and complete the form. If we cover the case, we'll even give you a shout out on the show. Killer Queens is researched, mixed, and mastered by our own damn selves. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. And our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Lilas! <laughs> the prosecution quit. I almost did it again. Quit. <laughs> what the fuck? The prosecution quit. Damn it. <laughs> why, 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 why? Try it. Take it from the top. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands, and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus, creator meetups, networking, and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com.